great offers and a great podcast? What a day. Thank you, sponsors. We appreciate it. This is an ICRT podcast. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And from Tai Jong on the telephone by Donovan Smith. And great to be back. Tonight we'll be discussing US President Joe Biden's Taiwan Strait mention at the United Nations General Assembly and his other mention of Taiwan regarding US troops defending the island. The Cabinet approving a plan to lift the quarantine mandate for most arriving travellers from next month and reopen the borders to visitors. And claims of corruption by Chen Shih-jong, the former health minister, due to the high coronavirus vaccine prices. And we'll also be talking about Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, inaugurating a new water recycling plant at the Southern Taiwan site. Park. But we'll begin with last weekend's earthquakes, the largest of which struck on Sunday and registered a magnitude 6.8 and was felt, needless to say, pretty much island-wide. The earthquake resulted in the collapse of a three-storey building in Hualien County's Yuli Township, the collapse of the Gaoliao and Luntian bridges in Hualien, the collapse of buildings at five schools in Hualien, damage to the Eastern Line rail track with overhead power lines, train tracks, several railway bridges and equipment all suffering damage, and the collapse of a steel frame ceiling at a public sports centre in Taoyuan. One person was killed in the earthquake and the Central Emergency Operations Centre on Monday confirmed that the number of injuries reported during the series of earthquakes that rattled the island stood at just over 160. The Central Weather Bureau's seismological centre this week reportedly warned that aftershocks are expected to last up to a month but they will decrease in magnitude and frequency. Now the earthquakes sent seismology experts scrambling to find the source of the quakes, all of which proved rather more difficult than us lay folks may have believed and the centre has not yet identified an active fault linked to the earthquakes with centre head Chen Guo Chung telling reporters that as neither the main shock nor the four shocks that reached magnitude 6 occurred along the Cheshang fault lines the quakes were not triggered by the Cheshang fault system that led to concerns about the existence of blind active fault lines under the central mountain range but Chen said no active fault line had been discovered there and more research is needed to determine if the central mountain range fault is active but blind and there was also concern about three or four high-risk faults in the populous Jianan Plain beneath Jiayi County in Tainan after the Weather Bureau's Earthquake Centre released a rather colourful map showing about 10 fault lines of various lengths in the area but the good news is that only three or four of them are considered dangerous so Brian big earthquakes lots of earthquakes couple of big ones and of course now we've got controversy over where they started from yeah, that's right. And so maybe that is actually a good thing, this consideration of does this represent, for example, something unknown about geologic features in Taiwan that would lead to these earthquakes happening? Uh, because there was discussion, for example, that TSMC had declined to build in the area where uh, it's thought there might be a fault that has not been detected because of the fact that they feared this might be happening. And so the question then is, is the government doing enough to actually figure this out, uh, to, to actually be aware of what might lead to earthquakes in the future and be better prepared? And so I think there's at least been this discussion after the earthquake. I think also, as usual, there's the kind of concerns about infrastructure that many buildings in Taiwan do not follow safety code. And so event of an earthquake, particularly in areas that have faced uh, issues with uneven development or less resources compared to, let's say, central metropolises on Taiwan's eastern uh, coast, that the buildings collapsed and that leads to deaths. And so there's also that, that kind of issue that always comes up when there's a big earthquake. As far as the buildings, I mean, since 921, you know, back in 1999, uh, you know, building codes have been tightened pretty significantly. The problem is there are 
tens of thousands, I noticed, in Taipei alone of buildings that were built before that. Um, and they, there's been a lot of talk recently about how the inspectors and working on modernizing old buildings, you know, it would take hundreds of years at the pace that they're doing it now. So that's a pretty significant uh, potential problem. Um, now, as far as the blind fault, I mean, I'm not a seismologist. I don't really know. Uh, but apparently they've only been tracking uh, uh, earthquakes in Taiwan since the 1970s, officially. So they've got a data problem, um, and you really kind of need to look at these things over a long period of time. So that's, again, another problem, and that one you can't fix by throwing money at it because, I mean, obviously you can't go backwards in time to, uh, you know, unless they, uh, you know, find a time machine. And if I had a time machine, I'm sure there'd probably be higher priorities in going back and doing seismological data collecting. Um, the the other big thing that I that really was quite alarming is they were talking about how prior to the most recent earthquake and prior to the... 921 earthquake is they observed groundwater levels dropping in the area. And they're talking about this may be a possibility as, as going on in Jiayi and Tainan in that area, and which potentially is foreshadowing something big, which would be quite alarming. Uh, in, I believe it was 1935, Jiayi was hit with a really big earthquake that was quite devastating. Um, and that one did make the historical records because obviously, uh, you know, quite quite a few people died. Um, but of course, uh, according to Johnny Jung, a lot of this is down to the might of Lu Xiuyan. Although she, he did apologize for that later when finding out uh, exactly what the how you know how extensive this tragedy was. But it was a little bit of a faux pas there at a political rally when uh, the earthquake hit, and uh, on stage he you know, attributed it to saying the might of Lu Xiuyan made the earth shake, but, you know, as soon as he realized that people had died, he immediately apologized for that. And for Brian, what about the government, of course, has long said that it will check all the buildings to see if they're earthquake-proof, but obviously Donovan hinted there, that's a bit of mammoth task. Yeah, it's a mammoth task, and I think there's the issue of generally uh, lax inspections. I mean, that applies to a number of fronts, including buildings, uh, for example, also uh, just fire code, um, as well as labor violations. There's also the issue then that there's a lot of cost cutting that occurs in the process of construction in some places. And so in the past decade, there have been cases of buildings collapsing and then later being found that there are oil canisters and other odd building materials stuffed in there to cut costs. And so that's a concern because that's harder to kind of figure out and root out. So I think the issues there are kind of uh, deeply rooted. I mean, I think the issues with earthquakes is that they are going to happen. We are just located in this part of this world. Uh, we can try to understand this better and prepare infrastructure in case that occurs. Uh, for example, then, I mean, there was the text message alert that occurred after the earthquake uh, to make sure people are ready for alerts about earthquakes, despite the fact that we had just had earthquakes right before that. So people sometimes questioned what I was sent out. But I think generally preparedness, also uh, building up infrastructure, uh, there are limitations of the data because it is an issue that occurs on geologic time and not human time, and so we don't have enough data. Um, but it's, it's, it's one of the issues that I think we're grappling with, and so I think infrastructure is maybe where we can actually put our efforts towards. Moving on now, and U.S. President Joe Biden on Thursday morning Taiwan time laid out American policy toward China and Taiwan as head of state for the first time at a United Nations General Assembly speech. 
Speaking during the general debate in New York, Biden mentioned the Taiwan Strait while reiterating U.S. foreign policy in the second half of his address. The U.S. president said America will seek to maintain peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait and pursue its one-China policy that has prevented conflicts from occurring over the past 40 years. And he went on to say the U.S. will also continue to oppose unilateral changes to the status quo by either side of the Taiwan Strait. And he stressed that Washington is not seeking conflict or a cold war with Beijing. Now, of course, Biden's UN Taiwan Strait comments came only days after he told CBS's 60 Minutes program that American troops will defend Taiwan in the event of an unprecedented attack. That was seen as Biden's most explicit statement on the issue since he took office. And when asked to clarify if he meant that, unlike the Ukraine, US forces, men and women, would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion, Biden simply replied, yes. Biden also reiterated that the US does not support Taiwanese independence during the 60-minute interview. Needless to say, well, as has become the norm, which is not surprising, following any utterance of the word Taiwan by the US president, a flurry of White House officials was immediately facing a barrage of the same question from reporters, that being, what does it all mean? And they once again reiterated that US policy towards Taiwan has not changed. But that appears to have left the experts and pundits all a quiver, as they spent days pondering whether Biden was changing policy, changing his tone, or simply saying something that he shouldn't have said Donovan. Yeah, um, well, okay, as far as the uh, UN uh, comments, those were pretty standard boilerplate um, comments. They, they, there was nothing really new uh, stated there. That was, um, it, it, it's similar to the kind of, uh, you know, statements that come out of, you know, G, G7 meetings and uh, meetings with Japan and, you know, that generally the statements have included, and a lot of diplomatic meetings recently have included uh, statements very much along those lines. Now, what I find very interesting is the 60 Minutes interview. Now, this is the fourth time he's specifically come out and, and said that uh, the U.S. would commit militarily to defending Taiwan. Now, what's clear to me, at least, is that, the, is that strategic ambiguity has shifted its meaning. Uh, originally, strategic ambiguity meant that it was unclear whether or not the U.S. would militarily commit to defending Taiwan. And now, uh, I think what it means is that it means that Taiwan, that the U.S. would commit militarily to defending Taiwan for now, and the key words being Taiwan and for now. That's where the ambiguity still remains. And what I mean by this is, if, if there was a, an invasion of Taiwan, yes, the U.S. would commit militarily to defend it. But that does not necessarily mean that it would include, say, Jinma and Matsu, uh, maybe, maybe or maybe not Penghu, or, you know, the islands in the South China Sea. So that remains ambiguous. And the other thing is, for now, because this is no formal agreement that we're aware of, then this doesn't doesn't commit the U.S. in the future or future administrations from adhering to it. However, this is something that really jumped out at me uh, in this latest interview, and then I went back and looked at all the previous interviews that he did, uh, the previous three before this. And in this latest one, he said, we agree with what we signed on to a long time ago. He also, in several of these cases where he's mentioned this, he specifically referred to commitments made. Uh, so, for example, uh, in the CNN town hall where he was talking with Anderson Cooper, he said, yes, we have a commitment to do that. And then in August 20, 
2021, he said with, inter, uh, with an interview with ABC News, we made a sacred commitment to Article 5, and then he goes on and includes um, to Article 5 with our NATO allies. We would respond, same with Japan, same with South Korea, same with Taiwan. So he keeps re- re- referring repeatedly to commitments and agreements that were signed on to over Taiwan. And so what does that actually mean? Now, he wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post in 2001 where he was actually criticizing then-new President uh, George W. Bush for saying that he would defend Taiwan uh, and actually did pretty much exactly the same pattern as Biden is doing now. He came out and said that he'd do whatever it takes to defend Taiwan and that, yes, he'd defend Taiwan. Um, but then, of course, you know, then White House spokespersons came back, back, came out later, and then they walked back the, saying, oh, no, we still it's a one-China policy, no change of policy, and all of that. And Biden actually criticized him at the time. And he said, very specifically, we're, he started the op-ed with words matter in diplomacy and in law. So I'm wondering why he keeps refer, referring to a commitment. Now, you know, I wrote a, a piece just the other day, wondering and, and wildly speculating as to what that might be. But he's, re, he's referred to it repeatedly and each time. So I don't think it's a gaffe. I think he's signaling something with that, but I'm not sure what that commitment is. Um, uh, you know, I've got some speculation on, on what it could be, but um, he's referred to that repeatedly. He's also, at least twice now, said that it was up to the Taiwanese people to determine uh, what he termed independence. Um, and again, you know, this is multiple times. So these aren't gaffes. He knows exactly what he's saying. He's very deeply knowledgeable uh, on Taiwan. He, he voted for the original uh, Taiwan Relations Act. He was the um, head of the uh, Senate Foreign Affairs Committee. He, uh, you know, he was vice president. And so he knows what he's talking about. He knows a lot about diplomacy. He knows what he's communicating in his words. And... Uh, you know, he's used the same kind of terminology, which, by the way, you know, when he's referred to this uh, across the different interviews, he also, right from when the administration came in, you'll notice that right from the Senate confirmation hearings, um, all all of his team was using very similar, they were all on the same page on Taiwan and used similar terminology, such as rock-solid commitment. Uh, or sorry, rock solid relationship. Or if China were to invade, it would be a they would change the adjective to huge, serious, grave. But they all referred to it as a mistake. It was all the same terminology, and so there's there's definitely been right from the get go the Biden administration has had an all of government approach based around a very clear idea of what their relations are with Taiwan. So there's a lot of questions to me about why Biden is referring to these commitments. Um, But I don't think that there's any ambiguity anymore about whether or not Taiwan would be defended militarily by the U.S. Biden has clearly signaled that. That kind of started under Trump, but I think it's been kind of codified under, under Biden. 
Uh, yeah, I think what's interesting is, uh, as you mentioned, it's happened four times. And so the question then is now the commitment of the U.S. towards strategic ambiguity is now increasingly ambiguous. And then the question asked of that is that is this new ambiguity on ambiguity, strategic ambiguity, is it strategic or is it unstrategic? That is to say, is Biden saying this deliberately or is he making a gaffe? And I think it's oh, the truth is oh, somewhere between that he has a master plan and is playing a four-dimensional chess and that he doesn't know what he's saying. Because the question is, do people around Biden actually understand U.S. climate policy? And there are sometimes questions about that. There's oftentimes gaffes, uh, for example, even among the Biden administration uh, officials, sometimes you will occasionally see someone conflate one China principle, one China policy, and that sort of thing. Uh, what I think is interesting then about that this has happened so many times and uh, uh, four times, is that there, it actually has been covered up that there was one time in which Biden referred to a Taiwan agreement between Xi, when he had a meeting with Xi right after that, between the US and China, when there is actually is none. And so that memory has been kind of covered up that he did actually suggest agreement between the US and China on Taiwan when there is none, which was a gaffe, uh, because of the fact there are more times in which he seemed to indicate US commitment to Taiwan. And so then people will question, well, was this deliberate or not, and whatever. But I think what's more interesting is thinking about the timing of this. This is after the Pelosi visit, which Biden openly disagreed from. Uh, so this does reassure that Biden is pro-Taiwan in some form, though perhaps she, he differs from the legislature in terms of what he views as the best course of action, such as regarding the Taiwan Policy Act. And that the Taiwan Policy Act is under discussion now, that uh, there are fears China would respond in some way to this. And the executive branch of government has sought to temper down some of the language of the act. Uh, Biden now making these comments, suggesting commitment to defend Taiwan. I mean, that further raises questions about where exactly the executive branch stands. And so I think uh, I would actually be a bit cautious of the notion that there's been very consistent messaging from the Biden administration from the beginning, because regardless of what policy takes place, if he maintains current policy, if he shifts towards a more supporting independence direction, let's say, or even a supporting unification direction, he would always express that in the language of commitment to existing agreements or what has already been uh, kind of discussed in the past. I don't think that for example, he would be saying that, well, we're going to break from the past and create something new now. Because either way, regardless of his course of action, he will always appeal to the past. That is the path of least resistance. And do you think he's doing it for another reason? He wants to sort of in a way, Brian, placate Xi Jinping? Uh, it's a question. I mean, I think particularly then, I mean, there's always cautions to speak for meetings by Biden and Xi because of what Biden could say after. There's always that kind of concern. Uh, I also think that the U.S. elections is another consideration because after all, uh, being strong on China is seen as electorally beneficial to Democrats. I mean, that's perhaps one of the reasons why the Pelosi visit occurred. It was not only for Taiwan or in terms of foreign policy, but also U.S. domestic audiences. And so I think Biden's comments also need to be interpreted in that frame. And that, if playing to primarily a domestic audience, does not necessarily mean foreign policy shifts. Um, well, okay, a couple things. I mean, uh, um the, the, when it comes to, and Brian's right, there have been some gaffes on the part of uh, the U.S. government, but what's, what's notable is that they were all low-level staffers. The, when it comes to the major players, uh, Blinken, Sullivan, Austin, these people have been very disciplined on their message. Usually when they've done things like mix up the one-China policy in principle, it's a minor staffer at the, at the White House, that kind of thing, and it's not really their field. Um, but when it comes, you know, to the but the top level people, I think are all operating off of the same page. Now, I do think that um, as Brian's right is that you know the timing of a lot of these comments. I think you know there have been uh, 
domestic concerns, but also international concerns. I, if you actually go back and look at when Biden was uh, spoke on this in May, if you actually watch the interview, it almost looked like he was setting up the uh, the reporters to ask him about Taiwan, and he was standing right next to the Japanese prime minister, and you know I just finished uh, a meeting with with him, and I to a certain degree I think that what because this and this followed uh, fairly you know within it was just over a month uh, when Shinzo Abe, who was the former prime minister of Japan, went out and started really pushing the issue. Uh, that you know the defense of Taiwan is a, is a security issue for Japan, and movement needs to be made on this because you know if, if China invaded Taiwan, this would become a major issue for Japan. And I do think that Biden was using the timing in in that, and I do actually think that it, you know it's definitely not a gaffe, and I actually think that he engineered it uh, intentionally to placate Japanese audiences. Um, you know, so I do think that, you know, Brian's right, there are domestic considerations. There's, you know, the midterms coming up in in the U.S., but I think in the case in May, I think it was targeted actually at a Japanese audience, not a, a U.S. domestic one. And we have to take a short break now, but we'll return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week. And the Cabinet on Thursday approved a plan to lift its quarantine mandate for all arriving travellers next month and reopen the borders of Taiwan to all visitors, but only if the current coronavirus situation in the country does not escalate. Cabinet spokesman Law Bing Jung says the new regulations will likely take effect on October the 13th as part of a phased easing of border controls. Those eased controls will start next week, though, with the removal requirements for arrivals concerning testing. Now, arriving travellers will be instead be provided with four rapid antigen home test kits from September the 29th. Now, the weekly limit on arriving visitors will also be increased from the current 50,000 to 60,000 during the first phase of lifting of border controls. However, Borders will remain closed to visitors who are not eligible for free visa-free rather entry, except in cases where special permission is obtained to visit Taiwan during that period. And from now through October the 13th, the 3 plus 4 quarantine will remain in effect, meaning if you come now and before October the 13th, you have to spend three days in quarantine and then four days looking after your own health. Now, the Cabinet spokesman also said that health authorities will be closely monitoring the coronavirus situation over the coming week, after which it will release details of the second phase of border opening proposals for public review. However, the Cabinet this week did hint and did stress, didn't stress, they hinted rather that the face mask mandate will likely remain in place until the end of this year. And that statement came only hours after Central Epidemic Command Centre head Victor Wong hinted that face mask regulations could be gradually lifted for outdoor spaces and some indoor spaces. Now Wong at the time said officials have been looking at possibly following the policies currently in effect in Singapore and Japan in regards to the lifting of face mask regulations for both indoor and outdoor settings. However he did say that face mask would remain mandatory in crowded places such as on public transport. And the Epidemic Command Centre head has also stressed that any changes to face mask wearing rules would depend on the domestic coronavirus situation at the time. So, Brian, obviously the move to open Taiwan to visa-free travellers has made business groups happy and obviously 
that's good for the government and a good for investment. Yeah, that's right. And so this is something the government is looking at, uh, allowing visitors back into Taiwan. Also, tourism has obviously taken a hit in the past few years. I mean, there's estimates in that, for example, it will take at least six months for the tourism uh, market to recover in that sense. And so I think uh, particularly there was just a lot of debate before. Uh, I mean, it was known that basically the CECC was looking at relaxing the quarantine measures or phasing them out in this way. But when would that occur? Would it be before elections? Would it be after elections? And so after elections reflect a cautiousness, fearing COVID spiking again, and this causing public back clash towards the Tsai administration, the DPP. At the same time, then dragging it on until all the way until the end of November, then that would be seen as indecisiveness. And there is a uh, happiness from the public when there is this lifting of restrictions. So that means you can travel again and not have to quarantine at home. And that makes it possible, particularly looking at other countries in the region and their uh, reopening. For example, then you can travel and have a holiday in Japan and perhaps come back and that sort of thing. But of course, Brian, you could bring something back with you. Yeah, that's also possible. I mean, it could be also something entirely new, not COVID. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I I do think that we've reached a point where you know uh, opening makes a lot a lot of sense now. Um, there there was a study I saw. I think it was it was in Lancet. Or it was it was a, you know it was a, a very serious, respectable study that it said that you know actually Omicron, not like the earlier variants. The earlier variants were quite deadly, um, but Omicron was actually ninety percent less. Um, deadly than the flu. However, because it is, it's extremely contagious, it means that it spreads itself out over a much wider percentage of the population than the flu does. So net, it could be as deadly or more deadly than the flu. Um, but over you know in Taiwan, over 99% of the cases have been uh, have had no or mild symptoms. Um, so, you know, I, I, it, I think we're moving to a point where we're just going to have to live with it as long as it remains the, you know, variants of Omicron, which is not that deadly. Um, you know, I, obviously, as with seasonal flu, um, you know, precautions need to be made around, you know, nursing homes and, and very, you know, people with, you know, compromised immune systems. But it, Right now, officially, you know, somewhere around 25% of the population has already had uh, has already had the disease. Probably the numbers are much higher because a lot of people are asymptomatic, so it could be 35%, 40%. Um, and then you look at the, at the percentage of the population that's vaccinated. 93.5% um, have had one dose. Uh, 87.4% are considered fully vaccinated, and nearly three-quarters of the population has had a booster. So I think Taiwan is pretty so in a pretty solid position when it comes to being able to deal with it. So I feel like the government is being a little bit on the cautious side. Um, but again, as Brian notes, there's political issues that come into this. Um, you know, if again, like as Brian noted, there, there comes another spike, um, or this current spike doesn't actually come down, or, you know, there could be political repercussions, um, you know, for, you know, for, you know, for the government into the election, you know, but again, you know, when you're going into the election, you also run the risk of if too many regulations remain in place, people are, you know, there's a, you know, a building sense and, you know, this, we've seen this play out in other countries, people just getting sick of it, um, so the mask mandates are really the one for as far as politic politically what I'm watching is because it looks like they're going to lift the quarantine one way or the other. I mean, 
uh, it just simply it doesn't really make much sense when overseas populations have been infected at a similar rate as Taiwan, you know, to close the borders to protect against something that's, you know, it's, it's you know, keeping the barn door closed after, every, you know, <laughs> the horses have bolted. Um, so, you know, that is, is going to go. And I noticed that they're going to stop doing their looks like, and they're using October 13th as that tentative date, uh, for the second phase, it could be earlier, it could be later, they said, but they will also stop uh, monitoring people's cell phones and things like that. Um, so that once those things are lifted, then I think the focus uh, in most people's minds is going to be on the face masks. And so the question going into the election period is, are people going to start getting sick of having half their faces covered in all their human interactions uh, with other people, um, which is not good for things like children's, you know, emotional development and um and just simply it makes life kind of weird when people only have half a face for for your entire day so the question is will that will frustrations build and will they manifest themselves in the context of the election or not and at this point we don't know people have been pretty patient with the mask mandate so far and maybe that'll hold until november 26th but you know i don't know if it if things may change between now and then and Brian, of course, if, when they open Taiwan up and the people aren't tested at the airport and they're given some test kits to go home, and of course, under the new regulations, you, there's no quarantine, but you have to monitor your health for seven days. And of course, if large numbers of people do come into Taiwan from overseas or Taiwanese nationals travel overseas and come home and there's a spike in cases and no monitoring of where they're coming from, do you think this will irk the general public in any way? It's to be seen. I think uh, that's quite interesting because it really does depend on uh, the numbers, for example. I mean, people, for example, did sort of freak out when it jumped from to 40,000 per day from around 20,000 at a time. That kind of uptick was noticed. At the same time, it is now just part of life. And so as historians of pandemics and epidemics warned us in the beginning, the when this ended is always dependent on the public acceptance of how many cases they're willing to accept, of how many deaths actually they're willing to accept, because this will become something that is endemic, that is like the flu. Uh, and it's also a question then, will the public then be willing to go and get boosters every year or whenever, what interval, similar to flu uh, vaccines, for example? And that's another factor I think that is also in play. But I think this is another incentive for the government to be a gradualist about re uh, relaxing the measures so that you don't have a spike in cases that might lead to backlash. Uh, at the same time, I think reopening now sort of makes sense as a time in which China is closing itself off and still committed to COVID zero, despite these rolling lockdowns that are affecting people and making them quite unhappy just being stuck at home and uh, because of any small number of cases. Because actually this is even a way to boost ties between Taiwan and other economies in the region while decoupling from China in that sense. And so this allows for more exchanges economically between Taiwan and the other companies, uh, countries that are opening up, whereas China is still committed to, for example, just keeping things closed down. And it also plays into international perceptions, actually. Taiwan does not want to be seen as irrationally committed to COVID-0 or closing borders forever uh, because of the optics. But I think then it's also definitely very political in that sense. And the KMT definitely will lean into attacks on the Italian administration regardless, though, uh, on COVID, precisely because, or for a key reason, because they are running the former Minister of Health, Chen Zhizhong, as their Taipei mayor. And Chen was seen as the architect of much of Taiwan's COVID policy as head of the CECC. And what about face masks, Brian? Of course, Donovan left a question, will the public continue to accept face masks when the borders are fully open? Yeah, I think it's actually one of the most interesting questions because I think the, uh, for one, I mean, even after the uh, uh, 
mask mandate is lifted, people are likely to voluntarily comply for some time because that is how the public has behaved during the pandemic to date. But it does open to attacks that there are too quick to lift the face masks mandate. Uh, at the same time, then, you do see someone like Taipei Mayor Kobanjo criticizing the face mask mandate as unnecessary at the stage. And he is someone that leans heavily into his past reputation as a doctor for his uh, political image. And so that you do actually see this kind of criticism coming from Ko. That's actually quite interesting then. And perhaps once politicians see that there is leverage on this issue, that is when I think there will be much more of a push uh, to relax the mask mandate, particularly if it, politicians see an opportunity to attack the DPP over this. But do you see it becoming a problem here? Obviously, it's never been a problem here wearing face masks like it has been in sort of an America, for example, because of course people in Asia do wear face masks anyway when they get sick. That's right. Do you think it will anger people if they you have to wear a mask here, but you don't have to wear a mask here. So I think uh, that's right. And so if you do have this kind of a perception of arbitrary mask mandates, you have to wear a mask here, not there. People will be angry about that. At the same time, I mean, I remember, I mean, I think we should all remember there was a period in which you did have to wear a mask on public transport, but then people would just take it off outside and that was okay. And so perhaps we would go back to that. But I think then the relaxation of mask mandates too will also, there's also the need to make it seem as though it is comprehensive and uniform. That's say thought out. If you have, for example, just, well, why can you wear a mask here, but not there? then it'll be preserved arbitrary and, and just rolled out in a poor fashion. And in related news this week, the government on Tuesday dismissed claims that the high prices paid in the procurement process for coronavirus vaccines could be a sign of corruption, describing them as groundless. Now, that statement came after the China Times newspaper ran a rather large front-page story, alleging the money spent by the government to acquire 53.51 million doses of vaccines was over 7 billion NT higher than the global average. Now, the Epidemic Command Centre in August did reveal the procurement price of vaccines and said it was 40.86 billion NT. Now, the newspaper cited the president of the Counter Contagious Disease Society saying the costs suggest the possibility of kickbacks in purchasing decisions made by the former Central Epidemic Command Centre head Chen Zhejiang. So, Brian, allegations of corruption in the purchase of vaccines for coronavirus. Yeah, I mean, coming from the China Times, we shall be a bit suspicious when there have been reports that the China Times or other want-one group-owned outlets directly take orders from China's Taiwan Affairs Office or receive funding from China. Uh, but this is a recurring theme of criticisms of the Tsai administration regarding vaccines, first criticizing it as having not done anything to purchase vaccines at a time in which Taiwan, like many other countries that are not first world major nations such as the U.S., uh, were not actually having a lot of vaccines. And so then this was leveraged on to say the Tsai administration had not done anything. The Tsai administration later proved, provided documentation to try to argue that it had, but this attacks continued. And then when Taiwan did receive vaccines uh, and they came from donations, there are criticisms that this is what Taiwan's reliant on, not some purchase orders, but the goodwill of other nations and that's another failure. And then there's criticisms of what vaccines Taiwan relied on, such as AstraZeneca, which is framed as dangerous, and so that the Tsai administration had failed in only purchasing dangerous vaccines. When Metagen was used uh, for domestic vaccines, domestically manufactured and produced vaccines, that was further criticized. And so this is another case in point, saying that Tsai administration spent too much money on this, was corrupt. Uh, there's always the allegations circulating from the Pan Blue camp and Pan Blue outlets that the reliance on Metagen and AstraZeneca was because of the Tsai administration's illicit investments in these companies, particularly regarding Medigen, which is, of course, a domestic pharmaceutical company. Uh, but at the same time, I think what's interesting is that this points to the lack of transparency in pharmaceutical companies, that they negotiate only with national governments, that often the orders are kept secret, and the amount of dosage or the prices are actually kept secret. And this is not particular to Taiwan, but it does point to the power that pharmaceutical
pharmaceutical companies have internationally over governments, national governments. And the Pam Lou Camp sometimes will leverage on this attack the Tsai administration because the public is not aware of the, the details of this industry. Though I do think the KMT is aware of those details from when it was also in power. But of course, Donovan, the KMT Legislative Caucus Deputy Secretary General Lee Darway on Wednesday of this week did traipse off to the Taipei District Prosecutor's Office and call for an investigation into charges of dereliction of duty against the former health minister in regards to the allegations of corruption. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it, it, the, the, the key here is that they have, to, they have to have some sort of proof. Just calling for an investigation on a theory that... It, that the possibility of corruption could possibly exist is a little bit on the weak side. Now, it, it's true that, you know, in, you know, as Brian noted, that there is a kind of a, a, opaque nature of how these uh, big drug companies do business with national governments, and that, yes, there is a possibility or, you know, that corruption could occur. Um, however, it... Considering how much attention and how much focus is being paid on the pandemic, uh, you'd need to be pretty stupid, I think, to to have engaged in corruption on something so visible, something so high profile as the vaccines, which was being covered almost daily uh, in the press for months. Um, so I think that they've got to come up with some sort of proof rather than just the opportunity for corruption existed. I think that's a little bit weak. Um, but we knew right from the get-go, as soon as they picked Chen Shih-chung as the DPP candidate in Taipei, that the KMT um, was going to make uh, anything and everything they figure might be able to stick on him as you know as, as the candidate there. Um, they're going to throw every. They're going to throw everything at him they possibly can to slow him down, and there will be a certain percentage of the population, most of whom are going to vote for anybody but the DPP. So it could be Huang Shanshan or you know Wayne Chang. Um, they, you know, they. Some of those people might believe it. I don't think it's going to impact voters who are thinking about voting for Chen Shijong in the first place. I think very few of those middle of the road voters. Um, who who are considering Chen uh, are going to take this too seriously unless some sort of proof uh, or you know something that looks possibly credible that something actually did happen actually appears. Now another question is I've noticed that the KMT has tried to make this a national issue. But I haven't seen very many signs that outside of Taipei this is gaining any traction. Um, or anything to do with uh, the DPP's handling of the pandemic. But going back to the earlier conversation, that could change between now and Election Day, you know, over things like mask mandates and that sort of thing. And Brian, do you you see these allegations against the former health minister maybe dissipating after the local election? Yeah, I think so. But I also do think that because his uh, reputation was so built on this, and this will be something he continues to lean into, his medical image uh, throughout his career as a politician, somebody's actually co-injured in that sense. This will be brought up again. Um, and so Chen has faced all sorts of conspiratorial charges from the Pan Blue Camp regarding policy. Uh, for example, in terms of the subsidies provided to people that had to quarantine at home at a certain point, I recall. Uh, there's accusations that he extended this by like two days because he wanted to benefit his son who had COVID. 
And so a lot of it was to that extent that, well, okay, Chen Shizhong is accused of changing national policy to benefit his own son for, you know, just two days and things like that. Gone to the very micro level in terms of the accusations against him. But I think a lot of this has depended on just alleging international standards, which then Taiwan does not meet. And sometimes those claims are not actually totally true. I mean, you even saw this with the vaccine purchase negotiated by Foxconn founder Terry Goh, for example, claiming that he can negotiate vaccine purchases when it actually is quite standard that pharmaceutical companies only actually talk to national governments, not local governments, not religious groups, not private companies. And before we go this week, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing on Monday inaugurated a water recycling plant at the Tainan section of the Southern Taiwan Science Park. And while, well, water recycling plants are pretty common things, this one apparently, though, is a bit different, as the water recycled in it is solely for use in advanced semiconductor processes. Now, the facility is scheduled to produce 5,000 tonnes of industrial recycled water a day from next month, and daily production is expected to grow to 20,000 tonnes next year. And the water recycling plant took eight years to build, and TSMC says it would allow the chipmaker to use a drop of water three and a half times. And the company plans to have recycled water that accounts for 60% of its total water usage by the end of 2030. So Donovan, of course, one of the reports, or several of the reports this week, said it was it was the first such plant. But of course, apparently in Taichung they've had them already. Uh, yeah, I, I, they've been recycling water here, uh, you know, at TSMC here in Taichung, and I, I, I've you know reported on this uh, here on ICRT before. Um, you know, they they've had, uh, and this also was something that came up and was reported on, you know, fairly regularly, at least in, in the local media. Um, during the drought, uh, which, as you may recall, here in central Taiwan was pretty brutal. We, we were without water for, you know, three days a week. Um, and so there was an awful lot of talk about how TSMC was recycling water. Now, it might be that this is the first plant of its kind. Uh, in other words, they're using a different type of plant. And it also seems to be bigger um, you know, and you know, it, it seems to be a much bigger and uh, a much bigger project. Um, and they're talking about how they, you know, they want to expand this to sixty-seven thousand tons of recycled water a day in the future. And um, so, you know, this is a pretty, pretty big and significant thing. Now, the question is, if this works out and it's successful, will other companies follow suit? Considering that Taiwan is pretty much every year at threat of, uh, because of the limited size of the reservoirs here and in certain areas, like down in Kaohsiung, where they rely on rivers, not even reservoirs, really, um, there is always a threat of there not being enough water. So the question is, will other uh, chip fabs, say Micron and, these, and other, uh, you know, UMC and all these others, will they follow suit? And also there are other processes uh, along the supply chain as well that also use a lot of water. So I'd be very curious to see if um, other companies follow suit and do the same thing. And another thing I'd I'd actually be very curious to see is cases where you get multiple companies coming together to do this. For example, say in the Central Taiwan Science Park where you've got multiple companies who are heavy water users, would they come together and build a, a joint plant where they could all tap into it together, which may be more cost-effective than individual companies doing it on their own? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Uh, I think particularly TSMC framing this as the world's first, apart from PR purposes, uh, it also plays a role in terms of how 
there's this pressure now on on electronics manufacturers uh, to have renewable energy in the processes to be reliant on renewable energy, and you have pressure coming from the companies that are are using, for example, semiconductors. Apple is a big example, uh, and so I think uh, then, for example, if companies do cooperate. That means they can't really tout themselves as the specific leaders that are better than other competitors potentially, and so that might actually be an a, a, a obstacle to cooperation. Though perhaps that is actually the most cost-effective, and what would actually benefit people. Um, I think what's interesting in that sense then is that this also goes back to global climate change. That Taiwan is getting hit with less typhoons, and semiconductor uh, manufacturing is notoriously uh, water consumptive. That it is used so much water for these processes, it affects Taiwan society as a whole too, because it does consume so much water. People have ration uh, water in some places, and so I think then that causes a debate regarding that this is necessary for Taiwan's place in the world geopolitically, that uh, and economically, that the world is reliant on Taiwan for semiconductors but consumes so much water, and so that also then. Points to the importance of this for TSMC that this is a way to reduce friction with the general public. Uh, this is also necessary for I mean I just mentioned the PR kind of uh, branding of the company as environmentally friendly, but also to reduce points of failure. That for example, if you don't get a typhoon, then you can still have water to use. And that's where we'll leave it here on Taiwan this week. This week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And from Tai Jong on the telephone by Donovan Smith. And great to be back. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.